and welcome to Cynical Talk. This is a weekly roundup between your co-hosts, myself, Thomas Brancato, and myself, George Shaft, where we will be exploring a variety of topics loosely related to MI Cynic and just seeing what happens. It's going to be a more laid back approach to the MI Cynic standard episodes. And it is a chance for me and George to sound off a little bit more on our own hot takes, on our own opinions and the beauty of conversation. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Cynical Talk. This is your co-host Thomas Roncato and I am joined by... You're joined by me, George Shaft. So some of our audience internationally may be aware that as of this month, earlier this month, July, Boris Johnson was in effect ousted by his own backbench MPs. Uh, following uh, a string of resignations, starting with starting with Sajid Javid, um, and then following with Rishi Sunak, calling it a string does a disservice to how many resignations and how quickly it was. It was utterly unprecedented in the entirety of British political history. Over fifty junior ministers and senior ministers, including the Chancellor of the Exchequer, resigned in the space of two days. In fact, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, resigned. Boris Johnson was thought to initially want to appoint Liz Truss to be the next Chancellor. But then another minister, Nadim Zahari, came forward and said that if he wasn't appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer, he would resign. Boris Johnson caved in, made him Chancellor of the Exchequer, only for him to resign the very next day. It's complete overnight collapse of the entirety of the government. Yeah, and and in a sense, I can sort of understand Boris Johnson's, one of his last comments as as acting prime minister, the the herd instinct, because it it did in a way mimic that. I I mean, in, in 48 hours, the entire structure of British government collapsed, which is, which is shocking, not least of which because it was collapsed by the ruling party itself, it wasn't sort of following some calamitous uh, war that had been lost, the death of a prime minister or, you know, something that might precipitate it. It was, it was simply, well, and, and then you get to the reasons why, uh, you know, MPs felt this way, although Boris Johnson had recently won a no-confidence vote. I would disagree, though, with your notion that there was no catastrophe, because recently there was, in fact, the biggest catastrophe that he could ever have had with his party, which is that he started to lose by-elections and local council elections and lose them big. Not one month ago, there were two by-elections in Tiverton and in Wakefield, one of ancient Tory safe seat and the other being a so-called red wall seat in Yorkshire, both of which Boris Johnson won in 2019, Wakefield being a surprise because it was one of the work of the Red Wall in that victory. As it stands, in June, there was a by-election in both, and Boris Johnson and the Conservatives lost both, and lost them both heavily. That is the biggest calamity that a Prime Minister can do, especially in the Conservative Party. That is the biggest calamity a Prime Minister can do for his party. Start losing. 
Right, you know, and that, and that makes perfect sense because at the end of the day, the political party is there to, to win elections. And so, you know, the, the logical line of thinking there was, hang on, if we're losing these by-elections, then the, the country has lost confidence overall in Boris Johnson or, and therefore the Conservative Party cannot be associated. I don't even think it's that high and mighty. It's if, they, if we can lose in a place like Tiverton, what about my seat? So there's fear in the ranks. But to, to there, I would ask the question, George, you know, who's done that analysis of saying, would it be best to just to replace Boris Johnson at the end of his, his term? Or would it be worse for the public image of the Tory party to be going through this infighting and this political cannibalism right at a time when the country needs guidance and leadership the most, a cost of living crisis, the Ukraine crisis, a heat wave that's going on right now, in which the government is more or less absent. Boris Johnson uh, is a checkist. He's supposed to be um, chairing a COBRA meeting about an emergency response um, to the heat wave because it's predicted that many people might might or will die um, because of heat-related medical concerns. And at the very least, the NHS will be overloaded uh, within patients. And so the government is absent. We have a dummy prime minister. And the question that I have there is, well, you know, is it justified but for the Tory party to be doing, for the Conservative Party to be doing this now? And would it necessarily be better for them? Or are they just shooting the other foot? There are two responses I have to that simultaneously. One is that, of course, it is during crisis when you change leadership. It's very fanciful to have the notion of, you know, oh, we will just change the leader, you know, when everything's calm and everything's tranquil. Truth is that never happens. It's when everything's calm and tranquil, everyone praises the leader. That's just how humans work. The other notion, which I disagree with, is this idea that, you know, oh, because there's a crisis, you know, we shouldn't, you know, because of X, Y, Z, whatever it is, so whether this time around, uh, you know, the leader should be there to manage things. Well, if you go by that logic, there is always something that you can point to. There will always be, you know, there's always going to be some crisis somewhere there's always going to be some flood some disaster some problem that you could point to to justify the leader staying on and the truth is at some point you know you just have to say there are problems going on we don't like where it's going under the current leader let's solve them with someone else right and and i think more than simply an an electoral uh, calculation. I think there's also a lot of truth in in what you said just now, which is that fundamentally, the Conservative Party and its MPs and the rest of the apparatus has lost faith in Boris Johnson. Even this is despite having just recently uh, said that they have confidence in the Prime Minister. So, as as you can imagine, and for all international listeners out there uh, tuning in right now, it it is. We are confused ourselves. Um, there's a lot of mayhem, panic, and confusion because, whereas it would not, I think it would not have, it would not have been too controversial to assume that Boris Johnson would not 
finish his term in office because, um, you know, he was always a bit of a wild card. But the way in which it happened and the speed in which this has happened, I think, has taken everyone by surprise. Boris Johnson had looked invincible really pretty recently. He'd won the biggest majority for the Conservatives since the 1980s with an 80-seat majority uh, against Jeremy Corbyn over in 2019. And, yeah, it's remarkable that it fell apart just a little over two years later. And, and some media reports, um, the, when I was tuning in last week, uh, in which reporters from BBC and other such outlets, Sky News, would be going to small towns across Britain to, to get the feel of, let's say, local Conservative uh, members of these towns. Because essentially, and, and here's the important caveat, the next Prime Minister, correct me if I'm wrong, George, will essentially be chosen by MPs not directly by the people, although, you know, that's never the case anyway, but let's say there's no general election to sound off on what the country might feel uh, would be the right prime minister or, or even the Tory uh, membership at large. This will be decided by the Conservative Party MPs. And so there's a bit of spectacle with the debates going on, although really there the question is, you know, are they... I mean, what's the point of publicizing it anyway, if it's going to be uh, decided sort of in a, in a back room in secret or, or at least uh, not including the general public? But so, and, and despite this, I think the, the, question, the question there is, well, if, if the public is not participating at large, then how do we know what they feel or, or who they think might be the best um, not only conservative leader, but effectively prime minister, uh, as happened uh, with Theresa with Theresa May the last time, uh, with, uh, when Boris Johnson assumed office, it will happen before an election or without an election. And so there's this question of, well, does the country really agree with this prime minister? In the case of Theresa May, not really, uh, because then she she went uh, she went on to have a general election and, and didn't do so well. Um, and so, anyway, the reporters, many reporters have been going to small towns and asking uh, local Conservative members, uh, you know, if you could vote in this uh, for the next Conservative leader, who would you vote for? And surprisingly, um, at least a lot of reports coming out saying that Boris Johnson still holds quite uh, a wide appeal with the Conservative base. What do you make of that? Well, the survey suggests that. Boris Johnson does enjoy a measure of public support. I think it's about, he always hovers around 35% approval, concentrated mostly in more conservative-leaning people. So it would make sense that, you know, if you're walking around the street and you're asking people, you're going to find a fair few who like it. But 35% is notably not a majority, and the majority voting, and they are voting against Boris Johnson. And causing him to lose local elections and by-elections, the measure that counts. The other thing I, I would wish to say is that ultimately the leadership elections, these very public affairs, you know, debates on television, thousands of articles, podcasts, ultimately I feel that, they, that they're a spectacle. And they're a spectacle to help decide in the back rooms. Because, you know, if you hold a, a debate 
with the five candidates who are saying they want to be prime minister. And you have them all in the, you know, in the, on the stage arguing it out. It's almost a trial run for you know, the shady, secretive operatives sitting in the smoke-filled room. You, know, you can imagine almost them watching the TV going, oh, that would, that would go very well against Keir Starmer at the next real election. Maybe that's the one we should be going for. Or, oh, that was a smart line. Maybe, they, maybe they'd be an intelligent leader, you know? That sort of thing. That, that's, how I, that's ultimately what I make of it, is, you know, it's a, it's a spectacle to sound out, to trial. Do a play. Or would you say, George, for example, that it's, um, w- would you compare it to a focus group? Yeah, I'd compare it to a focus group. Uh, in my mind, I had it more to do, you know, more of like a military sense. You know, you do like exercises to see how a unit would do in a real combat situation. But focus groups, sim- a similar idea, yeah. We'll get to the, the next national uh, general election in a moment, but these debates, of course, serve the, the nominal or the spectacle purpose, as you say, of, of whittling down what started as a rather large list. And now we're at the point, as of recording this, in which um, there's only a, a handful of, let's say, feasible um, candidates, one of which will be the next Prime Minister of Britain. Uh, Rishi Sunak, we've mentioned. There's also Liz Truss. I am not going to dare predict an actual winner. You know, as you've mentioned before, it, it really is... Things can change very quickly because, as we've seen with Boris Johnson's ousting, um, the Tory, the Conservative Party, despite um, the constant messages of strength and unity, and uh, can actually be quite disunited and can be quite chaotic and can change the mood from one moment to the next. Um, and so who knows? I mean, Rishi Sunak stands as the favourite, um, but things can change very quickly. As I've said, the entire thing is in flux at the moment. The polling that's being done of Conservative Party members is all over the place. Just a week ago, it had Penny Mordaunt being you know, the supreme leader Versus all, now all the polling is saying that Penny Mordaunt would lose every single head up against every single candidate. So I'm just shrugging and going, the polling doesn't matter. We can't really tell who, where, where it's all going. So for the actual thing to find out who our next prime minister is going to be. Well, let's um, let's briefly discuss the the platforms of the favourites. Um, you are probably more well-read on this than I am, George. But who, who is the, let's say, who's the most hardline, the most, uh, let's say, economically and or socially conservative? And, and who do you see as the most, um, let's say, further to the, to the centre or more liberal? Today offered a bit of a paradoxical situation there because Rishi Sunak made a pledge to abolish all remaining EU laws that are on the books. This is notable because most of the ones that remain are very technical tax-related things. Uh, And it was largely seen and reported as a Jacob Rees-Mogg proposal. Uh, So Rishi Sunak was really 
staking out a very hard line, very nationalist stance with that, which stands at odds with his actual support because he, he generally in the parliamentary party has the support of the known remainers from the, from the Conservative Party. The exact opposite been true, though, of Liz Truss. Liz Truss, during the EU referendum, campaigned heavily for Remain, and yet all the hard Brexiters in the Conservative Party are queuing up to support her bid. Are we seeing the end of Brexit as the single um, division fault line uh, within politics in the UK? Is it? Are we? Are we? Are we reaching post-Brexit, George? Possibly. Brexit relate. Hard to say. You know, where, what is a Brexit issue and what isn't, because they all are Brexit issues. But leaving aside that technicality, Brexit issues, I hate myself saying it, but I'm doing it anyway, uh, were the, just fell off the map during the recent by-elections. In Wakefield and in Tiverton, the issues had drifted away from questions of immigration and sovereignty and were just far more focused on bread and butter things. The economy, what's going to happen, what is the future, housing. All of this sounds to me, George, like it could be potentially very perilous for the Tories in the next election. Because if Brexit is not going to be dominating the debate the way that it did in 2019, then Labour is the one that stands the most to gain because they no longer have to fear the backlash from uh, regular Labour voters who might have gone blue or conservative simply because of, of a Brexit position. But now, if the playing field is essentially, look, who can deliver on housing and taxes, cost of living, and actually all things that, that Labour is traditionally the one that um, vehemently campaigns for or, or is most closely associated with, then that can be difficult, especially as the Conservatives have had power for, what, 12 years or so now. So. They have that hang on of all of the, you know, all the things that went wrong in the last 12 years. And of course, people get tired of, of the government ruling that long. So what do you think? I mean, it could be quite challenging that I think the Conservatives could lose the next election despite uh, all of this mayhem in Westminster and changing the leadership. Yeah, the Conservative Party's been in power for 12 years. They're going on their fourth prime minister and inflation is at 9%. There's a war in Eastern Europe sending the price of, in particular, fuel skyrocketing. The housing market is in chaos. The, you know, just in some areas of London, price of a home has doubled since the Tories took charge in 2010. It's on many levels. Life has become harder. So if the election is just purely focused on the economy, quality of life, if there's no sort of red meat, if you will, to distract people, then, yeah, the Conservatives are going to have a hard time. Brexit. Brexit has been a good issue for the Conservatives because they generally had an easy time staking out the Leave position, which was the one that won the referendum, and keeping with it despite all the madness that it represented. Just about every single other major party supports or is seen as somewhere along the spectrum of Remain. And so they're all fighting over the same voters in it. In, if you go from that dichotomy, partly what made Boris Johnson win so handsomely in 2019, the 
Mm-hmm. You know, on the Remain side, there were the Liberal Democrats, that's the SNP. Labour had put in a formal Remain pledge. The Green Party was run was running on a on a Remain ticket. And on the Leave side, there was the Brexit Party, who stood down in all the Conservative-held seats. And then there was the Conservative Party, which leaves it very simple for that side of the dichotomy, if that's your top issue. When it's not an issue anymore, then, of course, you're going to have to start talking about things that aren't Brexit. And as I've made clear before about economic data, that's not, that is not so friendly towards the Conservative Party. No, and I think you're, you're, you're right. I think in, in many ways, um, and as, as dark as it might seem, the best thing that the Conservative Party can hope for is to flare up tensions with Europe uh, and or create tensions with Europe just to keep the Brexit drum drumming. And even, but even there, though, they, they've realised to some extent that they have to read the room. In Eastern Europe right now, there is a war with, you know, between Russia and Ukraine because Ukraine wanted to align itself with the Western institutions, including the EU. And Boris Johnson, you know, for all of his faults, one, one of his best policies, in my opinion, of his was that he very strongly supported the Ukrainians and you know, threw weapons at them and aid and funding. And the Conservative Party in general, agrees with that policy very much. Now, I don't think I really need to explain to you why, with one breath, supporting the Ukrainians in their struggle for freedom and their fight to ultimately join the EU clashes quite a lot with a rhetoric of actually the EU bad. So they've been forced to tone down a lot of their attacks on the EU because the Russians. It's not a good campaign statement to, you know, stand on the podium and say, you know, we should support Ukrainians' honourable cause to join their European brothers and sisters and formalise that in the European Union, which is something they aspire to. Oh, but also, um, you know, let's rip up the uh, Brexit protocols against international law, brand whatever else with any kind of horrible names that you can levy at them. And it, it, it's this bizarre thing, but it always was this bizarre thing of the Conservative Party, because it's, you know, and I recently spoke about this with Rick Hotchner for a previous podcast on um, polarization, uh, George, about this, you know, the, there is something to be said there that the larger a party gets in a first-past-the-post system, which you usually have two parties, red and blue, Republican, Democrat, Labour, Conservative, you're representing so many people and so many interests that you've become an umbrella party, right? So you have in the Labour, you might have LGBT supporters mixed in with, um, you know, old-school unionists who might have actually quite a conservative, socially conservative views. Well, it's the same in the Conservative Party. And, and this is a great example of that. You have um, people who defend international human rights and law and principles and democracy and realize what we fought for in World War One and Two and so many other times and the best of Britain on the world stage. And, you know, the, these are highly educated cabinet members and the like. But then you also, as a Conservative Party, have to pander to, in my opinion, sometimes the worst of Britain, the most rancid and the most 
hostile and the most xenophobic elements, right? Because a lot of the Leave campaign and Nigel Farage and his famous poster on on the lorries comes to mind about the long queues of migrants. And yeah, it's tinged with racism. I think that's a fair accusation. I think it's self-evident. You know, I'm not going to speak about it now because, you know, if we have viewers that, that will, will, would complain, let's say, or argue or criticize me for saying, well, you're brandishing all, all of leave as, as racist. No, it's not all racist, but I think it's undeniable that a lot of it was too much of it. Even one person is too much, but in this case, there was a lot more than one and they had leaders and they had campaigns and they had red buses and they had all of it. And this was a, it's a large base of people that vote Tory and perhaps um, papers like the sun or the daily mail uh, consistently misinform these people here. So often we talk about Russian misinformation. Well, we've got a lot of that too, Murdoch misinformation. And you know, you've got a prime minister which had to be ousted by his own parties for sleaze and corruption precisely because, you know, maybe it's not such a good idea to rile up people with misinformation, uh, with racist, xenophobic attitudes, and then vote what turned out to be a clown for a prime minister. And so anyway, but the point I'm trying to make is the Conservative Party has to appeal to this broad spectrum, the most, let's say, rash, impulsive elements. And in this case, Boris Johnson is a bit of an enigma because I've always thought, even though he appeals, right, and he has this manner to him, uh, which is very much of a, you know, lads, lad kind of bloke, get a football, smash uh, smash your way through a kid uh, at uh, one of the, these famous memes that keeps popping up or a little flag through a zip wire. Uh, he's got this, uh, you know, he was immediately appealing as a sort of a bloke, you know, but I don't think he ever really was. I think that's part of the charade. That's part of the, the, the act. He's actually quite, quite a tough, you know, quite privileged and probably better read than we think he is. And Boris Johnson is undoubtedly pretty well read. There's a discussion, a televised discussion he had a few years ago with famous historian called Mary Beard on the influence of the Roman versus the Greek, you know, classical influences. And Boris Johnson was really holding his own. You don't really imagine someone who's just the, the bloke's blokes who's not read anybody being able to do that. So this notion that he is anything but a highly intelligent person is mistake. However, ultimately, my thought is that in 2019, the broad church held together for the Conservative Party because even though Boris Johnson was presenting this lads, lads you know, image and running on a campaign that was very much lowest common denominator, leave Brexit means Brexit type campaign, they could afford to do that because the opposition was Jeremy Corbyn, an old school hardline socialist who did not, who does not play well to the cameras. So, you know, if you imagine you're an affluent, you know, well-educated Tory supporting person living in the southeast of England, you're still going to stick by the Conservative Party, even though they're saying all the wrong things on the economy and all the wrong things about Brexit, you're going to look at the Labour Party and think, oh, but they've got that you know, kooky old socialist. That's not the case anymore, though. The case right now is Keir Starmer's the leader of the Labour Party, and Keir Starmer 
used to be QC, the highest accolade you can get in the law profession as a lawyer, and is extremely well-spoken and always makes mincemeat of, of Johnson in the Commons, and presents a serious face with serious policies to go with it. And that's part of what's been causing the Conservative Party all these woes, because now they have an actual competent Labour's leadership that has won by-elections, like Wakefield. Jeremy Corbyn didn't win a single by-election, you know, that wasn't in you know, a super safe area throughout his entire tenure. One of Keir Starmer's first, he's already won it. That matters. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with you that um, that Boris Johnson is a, is a well-read man and and probably an intellectual in it as well. And, you know, he's, of course, he's well-read on classical literature, and I would assume many other topics as well. You don't, you don't get to be prime minister without being exceptional in some regard. Yeah. You know, he probably is exceptional in, in many ways. I mean, I think that's self-evident. The exceptional thing about Boris Johnson, though, that both got him into power and has now gotten him out of it, though, was his history of dishonesty, frankly. Uh, when he was a journalist for the Daily Telegraph, he was the European sort of, uh, Union correspondent for them and the direct source of many myths about the European Union because he would just invent articles about evil regulations that the European Union was doing that was going to you know, ban bendy bananas. That was a Boris Johnson lie, bendy bananas. So... And he was ultimately fired for that one. And yet he kept going at any time period with, throughout his career. You can find some kind of massive lie propelling his career. The Brexit referendum, for example, clearly was one on clear lies like the, the £350 million pounds a week stuff. And that's all well and good, you know, when you're trying to climb the ladder. But once you're at the top, once you are the prime minister, and then a pandemic comes around and hundreds of thousands of people start dying of COVID-19, and then there's a war in Eastern Europe, and, and suddenly the, the Western world order starts to be directly challenged with tanks and rockets, and there's a competent person in the Labour Party who's running to be the Prime Minister too, suddenly a pack of lies doesn't really stand up anymore. And that's what's happened to Boris Johnson. It was scandal after scandal. Exactly. And we ended up with a Prime Minister that was not really uh, not up to the task and not the right kind of leader that you need for when things really get difficult. I agree with you, of course, about the, the point you've made about Boris Johnson's dishonesty, I mean, the track record speaks for itself and uh, and you know, his party levied that charge against him. And of course, he's, he's now been ousted. So um, I don't think that's a controversial statement to make anymore. But this is where perhaps you and I would, would disagree because I would, I would add another layer onto that where I don't think the dishonesty is just Boris Johnson. And I don't think the dishonesty is just politicians, which is a, another common one that you hear. I think it's it's wider than that, and it implies all of us. Really, ultimately, I think the blame for Boris Johnson and for Donald Trump 
and for all, all these other politicians, George W. Bush, and the list goes on and on and on. It's not really the politics, it's not the system, it's not the politicians. In my opinion, it, it is us, the, pe- the common, the everyday people, you and me, and, and all of you listening out there as well, you are not exempt. Uh, and I'll elaborate the point. You win elections under the current system that we all agree on, and that is universally seen as a noble, honorable system, a legitimate system. We each have one vote as adults, and we put that vote and we elect. In Britain, it's we elect a party. In the United States, you vote a president, etc. But we all vote, right? How do you win that election? You have to win an election by appealing to as many people as possible. And that, in a first-past-the-post system, that effectively means everyone. Although I would argue, even in proportional representation systems, you're not going to win unless you reach across many aisles. I would argue that first-past-the-post is much less reaching everyone than it is reaching narrow, specific segments of the population that happen to be concentrated in the right parts of the country. But that's a digression. Well, you can't, right? Because as I said before, their umbrella and first pass post system is even worse because you really only have two parties and they have to represent millions and millions of people. Well, well, no, because what you do then is you just collect, you know, single issue voters and special interests, you know, as like acorns with a, for a squirrel. Look at, say, the Republicans in the United States. They're on the wrong side of the public, the American public, on just about everything. But they find that the people who are pro, you know, Second Amendment are all super, super pro Second Amendment. So they take that stance. They find that most of the public is against pro, you know, some kind of abortion, but the people who are anti-abortion are super, super anti-abortion. So they go take that stance. You need to secure the vote. So if the Republican Party came out tomorrow saying, uh, you know, we think we should make ban schools and we should, I don't know, invade Canada. I mean, you have to pick your battles carefully because the point for any political party and any politician is to win. Otherwise, what are you there for? And you're not going to do that by picking policy against uh, common common views. Now, on, on abortion that you've mentioned and many other matters, the reason why perhaps is the Republicans may, and see, here's where careful calculation comes in, because they might gather that even if, let's say, 45% as opposed to 55% is for the restriction of abortion laws, but they might argue that that 45% is more likely to vote, more likely to turn up that day. Or they'll, or they'll say, look, We'll lose votes on this issue, but we'll gain them in another more popular policy, uh, like, for example, uh, I don't know, on, on military matters, the Republican Party is often seen as, you know, more aligned with, uh, let's say, the armed forces. And so they think if we pick up votes there, we can afford to be uh, uh, more ideological on that issue. So it's all like gerrymandering. Essentially, it's, it, they're all precise and careful calculations. Which are which are done at headquarters. It's a, it's the same for us, right? It's there were, but the Conservative Party might have picked up Brexit sort of overnight and unwillingly, and then determined, well, it's getting a lot of votes, so we'll keep that one, you know. And, and if we're losing on housing, then you know, but that's in a sense that's a good thing because it it means that you know democracy is is functioning to make sure that whoever ends up winning is doing so by adopting the platforms which represent overall views the most, because you're never going to have a political party that aligns 
perfectly with what the people want at all times. It's very difficult to do that. And but, often impossible. But you might end up with, a, with the winning party that ends up being the most popular on the most issues as compared to the other parties. And in, in the UK, unfortunately, we can only really speak about two. So the selection is, is quite, it's not so good because you, know, you only have two big umbrella parties which throw in you know, a lot of pick and mix on policies. We'll please the more left radical element with a couple of bones over there, and then we're going to keep the unions by you know, doing something completely contrary to that other group. And so, well, that's the art of politics. But where I wanted to get to with, with the first point is, okay, so you've got these parties that are trying to appeal as much as possible to their electoral base, not always by pleasing everything one group wants, but by trying to please as many groups as possible um, to win an election. And that's it's a tougher art. I, I do get your point. But um, bearing that in mind, I also think it often means, and this is especially true in the case of the Conservative Party, by pandering to the lowest common denominator, so to the gutter press and to, and to willing misinformation or to perhaps uh, religious groups that that are not using, uh, that are not factual based uh, findings in which that guide policy making or their agendas. And this is probably my single biggest concern and critique of modern democracy. So we have maintained universal suffrage. Everybody gets to vote, which is great. But we haven't accompanied that with universal quality education. And so Socrates would say that's a big mistake because you end up with the candy shop man rather than the doctor. And I think right now what's going on in the UK is, is actually a perfect representation of Socrates' analogy in Plato's sixth book, The Republic. This analogy between, you know, who do you want to lead the ship, the, the doctor or the candy shop man, right? The candy shop man promises you sweets now, the doctor promises you good health tomorrow. And I see this a lot also across the pond in the US, the promising of sweets and the throwing of the bones. And, and, and also, it, it seems that, unfortunately, xenophobic nationalist attitudes are popular. So would you say that this entire government change is a case of the doctor overthrowing the candy shop man? Ministers realizing the candy shop man is leading us to disaster. Let's have someone else instead. No, I really would not. And this is not just me saying, oh, the conservatives are all, you know, I paint them all under the same brush. I, I think fundamentally it's the same issues with the, the, the Labour Party. I think the system, the, the democratic system is flawed because both Labour and conservatives are not asking, not really asking themselves what's best for the country, but rather how do we appeal to that lowest common denominator? I think ultimately the root of all of our problems is an uninformed, misinformed, disinformed electoral base that thinks of only short-term rewards, cannot possibly imagine the needs of the entire nation and could not possibly sacrifice a bit of their gain for somebody else who might be more needy. We've become selfish and ignorant. Perhaps we were always so, I don't know. But I think the next Tory prime minister is not going to say, do you know what? This, this whole ripping up the Brexit uh, accords and, and defying international law and becoming a pariah state, you know, that's not really sane. It's not, you know, it's not conducive to good government and it's not the best that we can aspire to. So even if, you know, millions of people read The Sun and the Daily Mail and think, uh, you know, couldn't point 
at France in a map. I have no idea what the European Union was until the day of the Brexit referendum, in which was the most Googled term. Well, do you know what? Uh, we're not going to care about you. <laughs> Nobody's going to say that. In fact, the next Tory Prime Minister will just keep banging on the Brexit drums, even if, and this is my personal conviction, George, I don't think any of them believe in it, not even Boris Johnson. I think all of it is, I think the minute you have, the minute you have, you know, that kind of exposure to international diplomacy, I see it as exceedingly difficult how, how anybody could come up, how anybody could personally believe in it without having a stake in it. You underestimate the power of belief and zealotry. However, I think at that point, that's a cynical talk for another time. The gift that keeps on giving, yes. including new prime ministers. Unfortunately, I think in a way it's at the snake eating its own tail because it, it got Boris Johnson into power, but it also got him out of power. You know, the, the, this pandering to, to, the, to that electoral base. And we'll see if the next prime minister of Britain is going to also come to the conclusion that it's better to win an election than to uphold the values I believe in despite whatever they might say in the campaign. Very difficult to uphold the values you believe in if you're not in power. And that is politics. And in that sense, I think Britain, especially since 2016, uh, since, the, since Brexit as an issue sort of got onto the agenda, I think has proven itself to, to not be exceptional in the regard that we, we used to think this stable country and stable, mature democracy that is beyond the, the, the petty dramas of, of other countries. Well, that's proven to be completely wrong. We've been living now for, what is it, five, for over five years of, of constant drama, which is more comparable to, to the developing world, really, I would argue. And don't worry, it will only continue. Uh, that also gives us more podcasts, George, so in, I guess we should be happy. Civilization collapses, but at least I can talk about it, Thomas. Yeah, at least we can report firsthand uh, on the first, the first country collapsing here, the United Kingdom. But uh, that, I think, is, uh, is as much as we can possibly cover in this episode. We might resume this wider topic of Brexit in another podcast, but until then... This is your co-host Thomas, and I am signing off. Goodbye. And that wraps up this week's Cynical Talk episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could share this with your family and friends. If you haven't, let us know why on our website at www.micynic.com or over at Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and more. You can find us over at Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is your co-host, Thomas Boncaso, and I hope you'll be joining us next week for our next episode of Cynical Talk. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay cynical.